Thank you, choir, orchestra. I was watching you as they were singing, and as it came to certain words, you were smiling. Some of you were singing. Some of you were not. <laughs> but I'm blessed. Thank you for that. I, I find a person's last words to be intriguing because they probably say something about the person. Now, you have heard the last words of the hypochondriac. Those words, I told you I was sick. Or maybe the last words of the redneck. Hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> I asked Linda, I said, if you had the opportunity to say your last words, you knew you were going to die, what would you say? And she said, help. P.T. Barnum, who had the circus, it's reported that his last words were, how much were the receipts? So even until he died, he was concerned about the money. I looked up Winston Churchill. It said that his last words were, I'm bored with it all. Well, it's interesting to me that hours, literally hours before Jesus died, he spoke on the subject of love, speaking to his church, speaking to his disciples, and the message that he wanted to leave with them was a message of love. Last week we looked at the subject of anger, and today I want us to focus on love. Take your Bibles and turn with me please to John, John chapter 13, beginning in verse number 31. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the follower of God is expected to be a person of love. Now, I suppose that we define it somewhat differently because our experiences are different. There was a group of children from ages four to eight who were asked the question, what does love mean? Rebecca, eight years old, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Her understanding of love was in terms of service, the way that her grandfather served her grandmother in a time of need. Terry, age four, says love is what makes you smile when you're tired. I don't know about that one, but I sort of like it anyway. Emily, eight years old, said, love is when your parents kiss all the time. 
Then when they get tired of kissing, they still want to be together and talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. <laughs> well, there are different definitions. The dictionary defines love basically in terms of feeling. It says love is a warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. In other words, the dictionary primarily defines love as a feeling. It is a time when your heart races, your head spins, your hands perspire. Of course, that could be the flu, but the dictionary defines it in terms of a feeling. Now, here's a question that has always been in my mind. If love is a feeling... Are you still in love when you don't have the feeling? See, I love Linda. There's no question but that I love her. She's the love of my life. But most of the time, I don't feel anything. <laughs> now, you laugh about that, but you're no different. You just don't acknowledge it. But, I mean, does that mean that I don't love her when I don't feel anything? So I have a problem with love being defined strictly as a feeling. There are those who define love in terms of sentimentality. Some of you are old enough. You remember the movie. It was a sorry movie called Love Story. And the reason I say that is because it popularized that line, love means never having to say you're sorry. That is absolute nonsense. When you love someone, you're going to find yourself oftentimes saying that you're sorry, even when you don't feel it. But there are those who understand love in terms of sentimentality. There are those who understand love as a mystical thing. For instance, young people come to older people and they ask the question, how will I know when I'm in love? I mean, they come to you because you're older and more experienced. How will I know when I'm in love? Oh, you'll just know. It's some kind of a mystical thing that happens. So there are those who define it that way. Jesus gave us a definition of love. He described love for us, told us what love is. For instance, if you love God, look what he says in chapter 14, verse number 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse number 23 in that same chapter. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse number 24, He who does not love me does not keep my word. So when Jesus said, and you may ask the question, Do I really love God? Because I've asked myself that question. Do I really love God? Jesus said, If you really love God, then you what? You keep his commandments. See, we like to think, think of it in terms of if I really love God, then I have this warm, fuzzy feeling about God, that I have these feelings for God, and you may. But when Jesus said, if you love God, then you keep his commandments. If you love your fellow man, then you serve your fellow man. So the Bible says that as Christians or as followers of God, we are expected to love. We are expected to be people of love. There was a lawyer who came to Jesus and he asked Jesus the question, what is the great command? What, what is the premier command? What is the great command? And Jesus replied in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the fact is, as a Christian, love is not optional. It is a command. Did you notice that the Lord said, you shall love the Lord, your God. He's speaking to his people, the Lord, your God. If we are followers of Christ, if we are believers in Christ, then we are to be people of love. And then he tells us how we are to love. He said we are to love him with all our hearts. Now that speaks of the affections. That speaks of the emotions. If Linda asked me, how much do you love me? I better say with all my heart. That speaks of the affection. It speaks of the emotion. And so then love has a component of emotion. But I want you to understand this because I think so often we think of th things only in terms of emotion. Emotion is uh, spiritual. It is neither spiritual nor is it unspiritual. It is simply a part of our character. So there are, there are some people by their personality who are more emotional than other people. It's not a spiritual thing. Now, we normally think of it as being a spiritual thing, but emotion is not spiritual. It is neither spiritual nor is it unspiritual. Some people are more emotional than others. So that's the reason that you laughed a while ago when I said, you know, are you still in love when you don't feel anything, feel like you're in love? I wish I had more emotion sometimes. I don't, but some people are more emotional than others. And then he says, with all your soul. I'm to love him with my affection. I'm to love him with my emotion, all my heart. I'm to love him with all my soul, and that speaks of my life. Vine says it denotes the breath, the breath of life, the natural life of the body. Now, here's what he's saying, that I am to love God. If I love God, I am to love him with all my heart, with my emotion, my affections, and with my life, with my soul, with my life. That's the reason that the disciples rejoiced when they were considered worthy to die for Christ. And then he said, and with all your mind. All right, how do I love God? He said, I love him with all my heart, with my emotions, my affection. I love him with my soul, my very life, and then with my mind. There are a lot of people who think that when one becomes a person of faith, that if one becomes a believer, then you put aside your mind. You don't need that anymore. You just put aside no he says that you are to love him with your mind I'm thankful for you people who who study and you want to know and you question because God is going to reveal himself to you that's how you love God you love him with your heart with your soul and with your mind and then your neighbor as yourself he says well most of us don't have a problem loving God do we and why would you have a problem loving God it's our neighbor we have a problem with, right? I mean, I love God. He's somewhere out there. He's good, kind, benevolent, all those things. But it's my neighbor I have a problem with. Love my neighbors myself. Well, the Jews got around that one by definition. They asked the question, okay, I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Who is my neighbor? Well, it's not a Gentile. I mean, they are reserved to be fuel for the fires of hell, so we can check them off. I don't have to, I don't have to love the Gentiles because that's not my neighbor. I don't have to love the Samaritans. They couldn't stand the Samaritans. 
I told you that when they came to Samaria that they would detour around even though it was longer so as not to walk on that unholy sod. They didn't like the Samaritans at all. So that's not my neighbor and check that one off. Don't have to love the Samaritans. Not the publicans. The publicans they believed to be beyond salvation. They were too far gone. They couldn't be saved anyway. Because you see the publicans were those who had betrayed Israel. Because they had contracted with Rome to collect taxes from the Jews for Rome. So that did not include them. So then who was their neighbor? I am to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. My neighbor is myself. But who is my neighbor? Another Jew. See, they got around it by definition. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. But who is my neighbor? Well, it's someone like me. Do we not do the same thing? When it comes to love, do we not do the same thing? How do we define neighbor? Well, if you're a USC graduate, then it's another gamecock. That's somebody, that's my neighbor. I'm gonna love that person. What if they are from Clemson? Well, for some of you, that's not my neighbor. I'm gonna check that one off. Don't have to do that. Or your religion. If I'm a Baptist, surely I'm not expected to love a Methodist. That's not my neighbor. Is I, I've told this story before, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it again. Some of you were asleep when I told it the last time, so it would be new to you. There was a woman who was visiting a Presbyterian, I mean, visiting a Baptist church, and she'd been coming for some time. She was a Presbyterian. Well, the pastor was nice to her and so forth, and then he decided that, you know, I need to go and press her a little bit because she ought to join our church. So he went over to the woman's house and he said, you've been coming and I can tell you enjoy the music and so forth and we're so happy that you're there and, and uh, maybe you should think about joining our church, becoming a member. She said, well, I couldn't do that. Why not? Well, because I grew up in a Presbyterian family. My parents are Presbyterian. My, you know, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and so I, I couldn't join the Baptist church. And so the pastor thought he would press it a little bit more and he said, well, you know, he said it's fine. If your parents were morons, what would you be? She said, I guess I'd be a Baptist. <laughs> you see, whenever we define who is my neighbor, then we usually define it from a point of exclusion, that I exclude certain people. My neighbor, who is my neighbor? It is someone of my race, not someone from another race. But here's what I want you to understand. We are expected to love. If you are the child of God, then you are expected to love. That is an expectation and it is also a command. Now our example of love is Jesus. And God's love for us is predicated on his grace. The Bible says that it is undeserved. Did you know that God loves you? And here's one of the areas where I have some trouble because I try to be deserving of his love. I want to be deserving and yet I'm not and God's love is not based on me being deserving his love for me is undeserved his love for me is unconditional the word that is used to refer to the love of God is agape which means that when God says that he loves you it is based on who he is not who you are God loves you not because you're worthy of his love, not because you deserve his love. He loves you not because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. His love for you is undeserved. It is unconditional. And it is unending. 
In Romans chapter 8, verses 38, 39, Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that's the way God loves you. His love for you is undeserved, it is unconditional, and it is unending. I like it when Paul says, nor any other thing. I think he just ran out of things to say. He's talking about height and death and death and life and all those things. And he said, anything else, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friend, you can do nothing to earn the love of God and you can do nothing to keep him from loving you. He loves you. Well, the Bible says that if we are his children, if we are followers of Christ, then we are to love that same way. That means that my love is to be unconditional. I don't know about you, but I have a problem in that area. I am to love unconditionally. That's difficult for me. Perhaps not you, but it is for me. When someone wrongs me, I'm still supposed to love them. That's what it means to have unconditional love. When someone is different from me, I'm still supposed to love them. That's difficult for me. When someone disagrees with me, I'm still supposed to love them. You know, if love were a feeling, it wouldn't be so complicated, would it? But it's more than that. And the Bible says that God's love for me is an unconditional love. And if I am godly, then my love for you is to be an unconditional love. It is also unending. God's love for me is unending, and so my love for you should be unending. And that's a part of the story of the, of the father and the prodigal son. I, I'm, I'm, I marvel at that story. It's my fav, probably my favorite story in the Bible where this boy wanted his inheritance before it was actually time to receive it. And the father gave it to him. He didn't have to, but he gave it to him. And the, father took, and the son took the inheritance and he went into the far country and wasted the, the inheritance that he had. Lived an ungodly lifestyle, apparently. And yet the father never quit loving him. Never quit loving him. You know why I say that? Because if you read the story, the Bible says that when the boy came home, you remember the story, when the boy came home, the father seeing him from a great way off. That says to me that the father was looking for him. The father was looking down that road every day for that boy to come home. The boy who had taken his inheritance and he had lived a life that was displeasing to the father. But when he came home, the father had been looking for him. And when the when the boy came into range, the Bible says that the father ran to him and he hugged him and kissed him and welcomed him home and had a feast, a party for him. That's an unending love. So if I am a child of God and if I want to be like the Lord, then I am to love like the Lord. And if I love like the Lord, then it means that my love has to be unconditional 
And it also means that my love is unending. Now when I say that my love is supposed to be unconditional, that does not mean that it is without discrimination. It does not mean that I just accept and tolerate everything. But as far as the person is concerned, I am to love the person. Then there's the expense of love. Love is freely given, but it is costly. God loves you. You know that. It costs God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It cost God to love you and me. Separation, I don't know how it was. I don't know how it all works out because I don't understand it all. But I'm thinking of Jesus being out of heaven for 33 years when he's here on earth. Don't you think it must have been lonely there in heaven? With Jesus being gone. I know that whenever I'm home and if Linda's gone for, if she goes somewhere and she's gone for a few days, it's lonely around the house. I miss the family whenever they are gone. Well, I would think that it would probably be that way with Jesus gone. He's gone for 33 years. So there was separation. There was suffering. God the Father watched his son as he suffered. As his beard was plucked, as his face was slapped, as he was spat upon, as he was crucified. There is a statue of Jesus on the cross in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And the caption at the end of it reads, this is how God loved the world. And that's it. God so loved the world that he gave his only and his son died on the cross. And that is how God loved the world. He gave his son. It cost us to love. If we really love, it's going to cost us. It, it cost us um, to love a family. It cost us financially. You who have a family know that. It costs financially. There's education costs. I mean, you're out buying schools. Some of you are buying school supplies now. Cost a fortune. Get these kids back in school. Then they get sick. Got to take him to the doctor. That costs some more money. And then about the time you're finished with that, she decides she's going to get married. Now you've got to pay for a wedding. Cost you. Cost you financially to have a child. It costs you emotionally. That probably is the greatest price whenever your child begins to drive. I hated that, don't you? I mean, you're up worried until they get home. I was talking with Eric the other day, and he said, I... He said, I, I worry whenever my kids are out driving somewhere. I said, son, that doesn't end when they become adults. I still worry about my children. When they are out, when they are traveling, you worry about them. It costs you emotionally. When they're sick, you worry about them. When their heart is broken, you worry about them. So the point is, is that it costs to love, to love a family. It costs to love your family. It costs to love the church. Now, I know that there are people who use the church. They see it as a place for counseling. It is a place for, for, for wedding. It is a place for burial. Or, you know, I mean, it's just they use the church, and I understand that. But if you love the church, it's going to cost you time. This choir this afternoon, whenever we get through here, I think they're going to have lunch, and then they're going to run up to Aiken and sing up there and so they're spending their whole day doing that. We have so many of you, your teachers, and involved in Sunday school, and you spend hours preparing the lesson, getting ready. It costs you your time. 
cost you your money to so you know you, you've seen that to support missions and ministry and those things if you love the church it costs you if you don't it, it's not so much you use it but if you love the church it is costly it is costly to love if you love God it costs now look at the disciples they became martyrs because of their love for the Lord and and I, my heart is still touched when I think about those what was it 21 Coptic Christians who were beheaded all because they would not deny the Lord Jesus. I watch that and I think, Lord, I don't know what I would do if I were in that situation, but because they love the Lord, it costs them, and it costs to love. Then there's the extravagant. It costs, the cost is great, but the consequence of love are extravagant. For instance, we love man, and we are loved by man. One of my favorite stories is there was a there was a boy, a young boy, who used to go to the church where Dwight L. Moody preached. And he walked past, he had to walk to get there. And he walked past other churches. And one Sunday there was a fellow who asked him, said, why do you come so far to go to Mr. Moody's church? He said, because they love little boys at Mr. Moody's church. When you love someone, my friend, then you are loved. That is a part of it, that I love and I am loved in return. And when I love, I'm most like Jesus. You'll notice in verse 35, by this, by love, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Then when we love God, we receive his div dividends as well. I love God, I commit my life to him. What does that mean? I mean, what does it mean? There's some of you, I'm, I'm sure, who are not saved, you're not Christian. If you commit your life to the Lord and you love the Lord and you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that, what does that mean to you? Well, it means you're forgiven of your sin. That's what he does. And the Bible says that whenever we do, that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them again. You and I remember those things, but the Bible says that when we come to God, we're forgiven our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. We receive his perfect peace. He keeps in perfect peace those whose minds stayed on him. He gives us peace. Did you know whenever we commit our lives to the Lord, we become an heir of Jesus? The Bible says in Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I'm an heir of the Lord and our eternal home is heaven. So, yes, it costs to love. But there is an extravagant dividend that comes as a result. Let me conclude. We're expected to love. If you are a child of God, you are expected to love. You are commanded to love. Because it is our nature. If we have the Holy Spirit residing within us, controlling our lives, we are loving people. That's our nature. So we're expected to love. The example of love is Jesus. He loved us and gave his life for us. He loves us unconditionally. It's costly to love, but there is a, an extravagance that comes when we love. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' angels' song. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die to pay for your sin if you will receive his love. It is offered to you if you will receive it. 
Our Father in God, we come to a time thanking you for your great love, a love that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to understand, but thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. And I pray, Father, today for those who have never experienced personally the love of the Lord Jesus, that they would commit their lives to you, trusting you, born again, forgiven of all sin, a new person in Christ. I pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we'll stand. The choir will sing. We'll extend an invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to do so today. There'll be staff members here to receive you and pray for you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you here. If God is leading you, you come. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.